then uh, this morning is Sunday. It is February 28, 2010. One month from uh, my trip to Germany and then India. And uh, about halfway to our Mexico missions trip. What an exciting time. Our message is going to be called Unseen Forces. As we begin to talk about this, remember the Hebrews are vivid, uh, graphic uh, storytellers. I mean, all you got to do is read the prophets and you will be shocked. I mean, things that you never knew were in the Bible, teenagers, are in the Bible. Words that you're not allowed to say in your parents' home are mentioned in the Holy Scriptures. I'm not going to tell you where they are. You have to find them. <laughs> the point is, they painted a beautiful picture of the landscape of the world and described God's involvement in it. I want to take you back to a time before the Mosaic Revelation. Before Moses stood and heard from God and described 613 commandments, of which we usually only refer to 10, uh, a time before that. A time that goes back prior to Abraham leaving the Ur of the Chaldees, before Father Abraham had his many sons. We'll go back to a time immediately after the great deluge of Noah's day, right after the flood covered the earth. We started with Ham, Shem, Japheth, and nations came from them. By Genesis 10, we had tables of nations where you could point to a father of a father of a father of a father and a whole nation had sprung from this family line. By the time we get into this time period where you're around Genesis 10 and 11, what is the world doing in the plain of Shinar? They're rebelling against God. So people didn't retain the knowledge that God had given them. Adam and Eve knew what it was to walk with God. They knew what it was to fall, but they knew what it was to walk with Him. We got all the way to the flood where only descendants that made it were Ham, Shem, and Japheth. One of them did not do so good right off of the boat. As man branched out and multiplied again, again, deception overtook the masses to where they were doing things that they ought not to do. They were given over to a depraved mind, ignorance, so that they worshipped things that were not gods at all. That is the setting that we pick up in when the Bible picks up with the story of Abraham. Before we get there, I want to talk to you a little bit about if you had no knowledge of God, if it had been lost, if you didn't retain it because your forefathers didn't care to pass it along. If you were standing in a place where you woke up in the morning and walked out of your little mud-thatched hut and you looked out and you saw that there was a plant there, right? Sometimes that burning ball of fire in the sky would scorch your plant and you wouldn't get any fruit from it. Other times there would be just enough amount of sunlight to produce fruit. Other times you would need water for your plant, right? Water would fall from the sky. Wouldn't that seem kind of mystical if you had no understanding of God? I mean, it's not as if uh, we had books written upon those cycles at that time. Sometimes too much water fell. It washed away your plant. There were all of these unseen forces at work in your life. And what people began to do was they degenerated into a situation... It's okay, y'all have all seen Brandon walk before. Y'all can come back this way. They degenerated into a situation where when the plant died, they began to worship the sun. They said, no, 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 no. Look, whoever you are, whatever you are up there, don't kill my plant. I need it to eat. There was an awesome revelation that somehow your existence was dependent 
upon these unseen forces and what they did to your plants. What they did to cause water to fall from the sky or not fall from the sky. Can you imagine how this went? As time went on, these unseen forces required more and more, but think about every area of life it touched. Your husband goes out to hunt, right? Sometimes he comes back with a deer. Sometimes he comes back with nothing. Sometimes he comes back after one day. Sometimes it takes a whole week. Something mystical happens. You eat that deer, and somehow when it lost its life, your life was sustained. So you began to pray. You began to call out to the unseen forces. I said, look, he's going out to hunt. I'd like him to be successful. I don't know why sometimes he is, other times he's not. I don't know why sometimes my plant grows and sometimes it doesn't grow. But we're calling out, help us, help us. Can you imagine how that would be? How about this? You observe that every time that big ball of fire in the sky showed up 30 times in a row, each night there were faces of a moon, another ball of light in the sky. And every 30 times that the sun showed up, the moon traveled through its normal faces. And you started to notice, ladies, something happened to your body around the same time. And you didn't know why. But you knew that some unseen forces were at work because in a cyclical fashion, just like the heavens were rotating, something was happening in you. Then your husband comes home with a bottle of wine and some flowers. And you happen to be in the right place with all of those cycles. And life is born inside of you. And sometimes that life makes it. And sometimes it doesn't. You ever seen a baby born? Slap that baby on the back, that suction in its mouth. Imagine that you had no understanding of these things. Could you see breathing into your baby's mouth, trying to get what was in you, in them? Some life force, if you will. Imagine then that you wanted to appease these unseen forces. You wanted to make sure that if we're going to have agriculture, it's going to be good agriculture. If we're going to have hunts, it's going to be good hunts. If we're going to have children, we want our children to live, right? Isn't this what people want? They want, they want to prosper. They want to live. This gave way to the concept of sacrifice among pagan peoples. I'm not speaking about the people of God at the moment. I'm speaking about pagan peoples. Well, if your plant died, you obviously offended the plant god. What did you give him? Well, I gave him an apple off of my apple tree. He must want to. You don't understand, my tree already died. Well, you want to appease the plant god, you need to give more. Right? So you have a good harvest with your agriculture. What do you have to do? <laughs> well, you have a good harvest. You're not going to give the same thing you gave last year because you don't want to feel ungrateful, do you? I mean, if you had a good harvest last year and you gave ten bushels, maybe this year you've got to give... 12 bushels, right? Because you don't want to appear ungrateful. You want the agriculture God to keep blessing your agriculture. So what happens then? You have a bad year. You have a bad year and you gave 12 bushels. Must not have been enough. I better give more. You see how the altar's appetite grows and grows and grows? And it requires more and more and more work from you? More and more. How do you give 14 bushels when the 12 that you gave last year weren't enough and your crops burned up? Well, when you got no more bushels to give, you know what you did? How can I show you agriculture, God? How can I show you God of fertility? How can I show you God of the sky, sun, God? How can I show you that I'm devoted to you and that I want success here? 
they begin to cut themselves. They let the blood flow. I mean, what other thing did they have to give? That's not enough. They offered their children. They offered the very best that they had. Pagan peoples worship gods like Molech and burn their children in fires. Aztecs in Central America and the lower parts of North America killed their children to their gods. The altar was never satisfied. If you killed 40 children last year, how many children are you going to kill this year? So man's best efforts to appease these unseen forces, man's very best attempts to try to understand the way that the world worked and interact with something that was definitely a force at work, but they couldn't see it, couldn't comprehend it, didn't understand it, required more and more and more from man, and yet, crops still failed. Children still died. Hunts were still unsuccessful. Man's very best attempts could not appease the greedy altar. This escalation went on to where after giving everything you had, after cutting everything that you could cut, after giving away all the children that you could have, it began to describe the gods in a kind of aloof soap opera fashion. Detached. We can't be with them. I mean, look, we've given everything we have and it's not enough. They don't walk among us. We can't go to where they are. They're somewhere up there. How did that concept start? Well, rain falls from the sky. Sunlight comes from the sky. Smoke, when it burns, rises to the sky. They must be up there and we're stuck down here. They viewed a great distance between their gods and them. And nothing they could do would ever give enough to make these gods happy. And then elaborate stories began to form. Well, David had a good crop. Mandy had a bad crop. David gave more than Mandy gave. David killed two of his kids. Well, it must be that the God of agriculture got into a fight with the God of war, who Mandy also worships. And he killed some part of the God of war. This left David in a good position and Mandy in a bad. Read Greek history. It sounds like this. I mean, and I actually picked the nice one. The, the truth is they, they were very lurid. Their gods were unwholesome in every sense of the word. The Bible was not written in a vacuum. It was not written outside the scope of human history. It was written within the scope of human history. While God is above this, interacting in it, considering everything that man does, the Psalms say, he brings truth in the midst of darkness, but this is what the world at large was experiencing during the time that Genesis 12 takes place. Turn there with me. Oh, they got the new Bibles. I mean, they're faster. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I want you to understand how monumental this is. At this time, what God spoke personally to a man, not a man who's a priest, not a man who's special in some way, just a man. What God speaks personally to him. And then what does he say? He said, I want you to leave your country. Country had national gods. When I go to India, they have 12 national gods. 
leave your country. Vis-a-vis, -vis, leave your gods. Leave your people who taught you how to relate to your gods, the sky god, the nature god, the war god, the love god, the fertility god. Who taught you to relate to them? Your people did. And your father's household. Who taught you more than anyone else? Son, our flock has a disease. What do we do? Well, you need to sacrifice to the God who can do something about that. Dad, Dad, so-and-so's baby died. What do we do? Well, you need to sacrifice to this God. Dads were responsible for teaching their children how to appease the unseen forces. Come on now, can y'all relate to this at all? Yes. Children learn from their daddies. Not a lot's changed, right? They even learn from their daddy's absences. The first thing God did with this man when he spoke to him was separate him from what his understanding of the spiritual and natural world is. And I want you to understand when I say spiritual world and natural world, the Hebrews make no distinction. Jesus had no such concept as a spiritual life. To him, all high life, Hebrew for life, is spiritual. All life is breathed of God. There's no compartmentalization that says this is spiritual and this is secular. It was all spiritual. The first thing God says to Abraham is, I want you to leave all of that trash behind. How easy is that to say? <laughs> How hard is it to do? How many times in your life have you promised to leave the old life behind only to find bits and pieces of it creeping up? Abraham was an old man when he was called. What did they say? Old men are said in there. Do you think any bits of this old spiritual life was a part of who he was? Yes. See, we view Abraham now all these many years later as Father Abraham had many sons. Many, you know, we, to us he's the, the great man of God. And we act like he dropped out of the sky that way. Would you be surprised to know that Joshua 24 verse 2 says, Abraham's father, Terah, was an idolater. You know, the Jews have a funny story about this. It, it, uh, it's Jewish tradition. I, I really rather enjoyed it. When Abraham gets this revelation, he goes into his father's shrine room, right? So I've got to picture a room like this with gods on all the walls. <laughs> he took an axe and chopped up all of the idols except one. And then he put the axe in the hand of the idol that he left remaining. When his father came in the next morning, he goes, Oh my God, what happened here? What happened? What happened? Abraham's like, I think it's pretty obvious what happened here. He says, No, no, it can't be. Got one idol with an axe in his hand, a bunch of dead idols. I mean, what do you think happened? He said, But it can't be. Why can't it be, Father? Because I made them with my own hands. They're just brick. They're just stone. They're just wood. Then why do you worship them, Dad? Mm. Boy, that's so convicting, isn't it? How much money have you spent on bass fishing? How much money have you spent on your idols of bricks, stone, wood? Do they really have the power to make you happy? Or do they just consume more and more and more and more and more and leave you hollow? My little boys like paintball. They have a hard time understanding the concept of what it is to actually consume, burn up, a hundred dollars. How happy does it make you? How long does it last? Before you need a new drug, a new song, a new car, 
a new job, a new girl, a new, a new, a new, a new. Are we really so different from them? There are all these unseen forces at work in our lives. And we think if we just give a little more, if we just try a little harder, if we just do this, if we just do that, if we just could... How many people have sacrificed their children on the altar to business? Burning the midnight candle to get ahead in business so that my children will have more. I want to tell you as a pastor, I've observed something. Children that have more are worse children than children that do not have more. I want to tell you right out. When you tell me what all you got your kids for Christmas and you're excited about it and you brag about it, all I'm thinking is, are you sacrificing to unseen forces for the affection of your children. Come on now. How many people can picture a kid that has every Game Boy, every Xbox, every, 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 and is still a brat? How many of you can picture that? What if that's us? What if that kind of materialistic brat is America? What do you think we spent on cosmetics last year? I'm not even talking about the kind of cosmetic surgeries, you know. <laughs> what do you think we spent? I don't know. The number is so high that they don't know how to calculate it because it branches into every area. I know what we spent on ice cream. We spent $20 billion on ice cream last year. It's enough to feed the entire world. Unseen forces. The miracle of the biblical story is that God reached down into the midst of people groping with unseen forces, sacrificing more and more and more to where they were literally hurting themselves to appease the unseen forces, and he said something completely new. Listen to this. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. A God that doesn't want me to hurt myself? A God that doesn't want me to disparage myself, hurt myself, degrade myself in some way for His favor. A God that simply wants me to love Him and He will give me His favor. And why does He give me favor? So that I can give it to other people. This was a new concept. Not completely new in the world because the people of God through the line of God, had always had it, but the world at large had been darkened in its understanding. Much like when the Roman Catholic Church took the Word of God out of the hands of the people. They became darkened in their understanding. And now God is interjecting light. He says, I will bless you. What did He require of Abraham? Nothing more than that He leave His concepts of greedy altar of appeasing these unseen forces and trust who he was hearing. And what did he want Abraham to do? When I bless you, bless other people. That is an amazing thing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will bless you. Be blessed because of you or blessed through you. Can you imagine this? During a time period where you saw the unseen spiritual forces, or the pantheon of gods, much like we see soap opera characters, selfish, in it for themselves, only this one sleeping with that one to manipulate this one or that one. You're only getting the benefits of their lust in some way. If this god wanted to sleep with that one, we might get rain this year. <laughs> if that was your view of the unseen spiritual forces, and suddenly... From the very heavens themselves, God spoke to you in a way that you could not deny and said, I want to bless you, and I'll use you to bless everybody. What would you be thinking? What's it going to cost me? 
There's no price tag. There is no price tag. With that in mind, maybe we should look at Genesis 22. Y'all with me so far? Yeah. 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 I've got some good things as we move later into the book of Leviticus, the kind of things that you will want to write down, the kind of things that you won't hear just anywhere else. I heard a powerful man of God mention them in passing. He didn't explain them. I had to go find them. And they're excellent, and you'll want to write them down. But for now, I want to talk to you about Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Before we go any further, could you look at this biblical story and say, let's suppose you're an outsider, right? You didn't grow up hearing, Father Abraham's a great man. You didn't grow up knowing how the story ends. You just hear this story, wouldn't you be thinking, what kind of God wants to test somebody by having him kill a son? I mean, how could... This is really the problem with religion. Is It's arcane. It's regressive. It's always about restraining people. Couldn't you think that? Hadn't you heard people say that? Yes. That was the world of this day. Religion was arcane. It was regressive. This is something new. God appeared in the midst of the greedy altar scenario that wanted more and more and more and more and you never knew where you stood and were laden with guilt and a constant anxiety. Is it going to rain today? It's going to rain today? My children going to live? Never knew where you stood. And he tested Abraham. Maybe we've misunderstood this test to some degree. Yes, it is a test to see whether or not he will do what God says. What would Abraham have been used to seeing and doing? Greedy altar. He comes from Ur of the Chaldees, friends. His father was an idolater. What do you think he saw? I have no idea whether any of his sons, I'm sorry, not his sons, his brothers, his siblings, I have no idea if any of his family members had ever been sacrificed, but I know this, the region that he comes from, they sacrifice to everything you can sacrifice to. I know this, when they wanted their children to live, they did unwholesome things to fertility goddesses. That was his background. Don't you find it strange that Abraham didn't argue with God here? He said, oh, <clears throat> let's talk, God. I mean, my son, why would you want that? This is what all the gods wanted. That's the world environment, the worldview he had grown up in. What if God arranges this story simply to prove a point that he is not like those gods? Won't that put a new spin on the story? That's good. Now, I know you Bible scholars, this foreshadows Christ. Trust me, I get it. Preached it many, many times. But let's not escape the fact that at the time this is going on, people were sacrificing their children to God. Wow. Maybe God didn't understand how much uh, Abraham loved him. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That word in Hebrew is Ahab. Like Ahab, but it's got an extra W in it. Ahab. It's the first time in all of the Hebrew scriptures the word Ahab shows up. The very first time the kind of love that a father has for a son, an affection that could legitimately be called love, shows up in all of the Bible, is what Abraham felt towards Isaac. Wow. Isn't that interesting? And God put that to a test. What do you do when you love Abraham? 
He's teaching him about the way that Abraham is to love God, and Abraham doesn't get it yet, and neither do we. Is it that we sacrifice on the altar? Is it that we burn up? Is it that there's a greedy altar out there that you just need to appease unseen forces? Is our obedience the best way to show love? Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. How interesting that the region of Moriah is the same region that Jesus was crucified in. And that God pointed out the actual mountain that he wanted this done on. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey. You should read that in the King James sometime. <laughs> See, teenagers, you need to stay awake in church. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, boy, I don't even have time to preach about that, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants. Now when Abraham saw the place in the distance, that's an interesting way to say it, isn't it? Because he is seeing a place literally that is in the distance, but what is it also? It's also in the prophetic distance. Because the real fulfillment of this is going to come more than 2,000 years after Abraham. We know that now, right? You know who didn't know that then? Abraham. Or it wouldn't have been a test. This is one of the problems with looking in the rear view mirror of the scripture. We impose upon them the knowledge that we have now. But they were living it for the first time. Abraham came from a world that did want the sacrifice of your sons and daughters. Abraham came from a world where people did mutilate their flesh for God. By the way, when I preached about 4% ABCs, the teenagers, they cut themselves now. Are we really so different than the ancient people that we think? I mean, we're so enlightened. We're so progressive. We're so technologically advanced. Then why are there teenagers in any group of a thousand, their number in the hundreds, who have cut marks on their body? Who are they trying to appease? What feelings are they trying to expunge from their body? Guilt? Shame? Anxiety? You don't cut yourself. What do you do? You have trouble sleeping at night? You got to drink 47 Starbucks every day to stay awake during the day because you can't sleep at night because you can't ever slow your mind down enough to consider the things that are really important? You bury yourself in work, bury yourself in activity to avoid having to feel what it's like to sit in a quiet room with God for a few minutes. Are we really so different than these people? He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. It almost sounds like he's gotten to know this God in a way that maybe he's not going to require. Or maybe if he does require it, he's going to do something special with it, like raise him from the dead. That's what Hebrew says Abraham was thinking. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, just like the cross was placed upon Jesus. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. I'd love to teach on the shadow and type, but today what I really want you to get is yet to come. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac. 
But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Who told him how to build an altar? Who knows? Scripture doesn't say God just showed him how to do that. Where would he have seen altars before? What would he have seen done on those altars before? This is not a foreign concept to this man. The foreign concept is what is God and his nature really like? And he was completely dependent upon God to reveal that to him. Because his concepts of God's were not like the one true God. And God is revealing in a way that Abraham can never forget. In a way that could be written down for the ages. A way that even you today could learn from 4,000 years later. What is God like? Is he trying to hold over your head good things and bad things? You know, there's nothing that makes me more sick than when somebody says, well, Pastor, I didn't tithe, so I know God's going to get it some way. Really? That's, that's what your tithe is? Your tithe is something that you bring to an altar that God punishes you if it's not enough, not, uh, you know, you're going to experience famine or feast because that's what it is to you? Why not go worship Baal? He might require less money. Is that really what it is? How, how easily we fall right back into that ancient appeasing the unseen forces. Is this really what God is after, I wonder? But pastor, you put a tithe box in the back of the room, you tell us to tithe. Yeah, but it's certainly not to appease the judgment of God. We'll get into what that is in a minute. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb, the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. It's almost as if all of the heavenlies were watching. Everyone knew that God was not going to kill Isaac except Abraham. They were waiting. They were waiting to see if the man would be obedient so that they could intercede. Well, then what is the point? Was it just that Abraham needed to be obedient? Maybe God is turning a concept that Abraham already knows, already grasped on his head to teach him and father a new line of people that understood the unseen spiritual forces differently. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He saw the king of the sheep caught by its crown. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of a son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, provide, Yireh, Yahweh, Yireh, the Lord will provide. Why didn't he name it, the Lord has just provided? Because the ram that he caught was not the provision God was teaching him about. What did Abraham think was going to be sacrificed? This would have made God like every other God he worshipped. 
If I want favor from you, I've got to kill my kids. If I want favor from you, I've got to bloodlet. If I want favor from you, I've got to degrade, got to hurt, got to do things to get your blessing. I have to earn it. And Abraham set out to go do exactly that because God said it. But God waited just like a father who is teaching his child something and said, no, 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 stop! That thing you were just willing to do, I'm going to do it. Because I'm that kind of God. I'm not the kind that wants to hurt you. I'm not the kind that wants to extort you. I'm the kind that will give it all for you because I love you. See, that's the kind of God that was revealing himself to Abraham. What an amazing thing. We can focus on the Christology in it to the point that we forget there was a man doing it. There was a man there. And he was struggling with his concept of what God was. But he was being obedient to the one that was revealing himself to him. What an amazing thing. That makes him wholly unlike any of us, huh? Do you struggle with what God would want from your life? Do you sometimes think I could just do more in this area, then I would have God's favor. How many of you stay out of church because you're scared about what's in there? The God that we serve wants to bless you now. And all He wants you to do is be obedient from this point forward. Where was Abraham when God found him? In the midst of an idolatrous household and an idolatrous nation. The kind of man that didn't blink when God said, I want you to kill yourself. Turn with me to Leviticus. Yesterday I heard somebody call Leviticus a B-grade slasher film. <laughs> go here, kill this, go there, kill that, let blood here. You know, you almost get the, the impression that uh, in the person's mind who said it, there's blood being thrown at the camera. Leviticus, no doubt, is a bloody book, is it not? Yeah. How many of you have even read Leviticus all the way through? Wow. Some of you need to get to reading. Is it maybe because inherently in here when we're reading it, we go, I don't understand. Lord, why do you want all of this? But to the people during the time period that it's written, they understood sacrifice very, very well. What were they used to doing? I, 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 I would blush having to tell I'm glad Miss Suzanne's not here. She's my mother-in-law. And there are some things that I sometimes want to say and I look over, and Suzanne's my barometer. If I can't say it in front of Suzanne, I cannot say it. And I know that. There were Aztec priests that mutilated very special private areas of their bodies to show their gods how much they loved them. Right? Like it's not enough just to cut yourself somewhere else. Right? To the ancient world, the gods demanded you to hurt yourself, to give of yourself. But the God that is being revealed in the scriptures is a God who not only doesn't want that, he wants to bless you without you doing that and only ask one thing in return. What did Abraham have for Isaac? first time it appears in all the word. That's all he wants is you to love him. Before you begin to fall into the trap of thinking love is an emotion, if a man hits his wife every day, does he love her? No, probably not. Probably not. We 
need to be honest about whether or not we really love Jesus. It's an easy thing to say, but would your friends, if Jesus was your boyfriend, would your friends think that you loved him? Would your parents think that you loved him? Because if they don't, I'm going to submit to you that you don't really love him. You want to be blessed by him, but you don't love him. You want to wear his letter jacket, but you don't actually want to go out with it. Leviticus 1, starting in verse 2. By the way, we'll start in verse 1. I don't think Leviticus is a B-grade slasher film. I thought it was a funny comment that somebody made. I want you to hear the beautiful grace that is in Leviticus. You remember that the gods were unapproachable? Watch this. The Lord called to Moshe and he spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. You say, well, Eric, what's the deal with that? What's unique about that? The words for bring an offering in Hebrew are korban. Q-O-R-B-A-N. This would be something that you would want to write, I promise. The Strong's number for it is 7133. Strong's defines it as something that is brought near to the altar or near to God. I want you to understand that an ancient man who's looking at his plants, who's looking at his fields and wants to offer something to God, what does he do? Well, I can't get up there to give it to him, so what does he do? He lights it on fire so that the smoke rises to the place that he cannot go. When God wanted to burn offering, that's not how he did it. Yes, they still lit it on fire. Still the smoke rose to heavens. But the words that he uses are, when you korban, when you come near to me, this is what I want you to do. It was not a God who was way up there and you're way over here. It's a God who was willing to dwell near to you. Every offering mentioned in the book of Leviticus is mentioned as something that you korban. You come near to God to bring. This is distinctly different. It's revolutionary from the way that the people of this day thought. In Egypt, if you did think you could get near a God, he was some kind of flaming pervert that was the incarnation of a God and you were worshiping as a Pharaoh. They very often had children with their sisters. I mean, we're talking about strange people. But an average person couldn't get there. Only royalty or only a priest. The average guy on the street had no way to get near to God. And the book of Leviticus says, when you korban, when you come close to God with some kind of offering. And I do want you to understand, nobody approached God without an offering. They understood innately that any good thing that they had in their lives had come from Him. They wanted to show that they loved Him and trust Him and were thankful. This is different than the greedy altar. This is different than the altar that says, if I don't do this, then I won't have crops next year. If you give money to this church, to God or to any godly cause, because you're scared of retribution if you don't, listen to me. God's not accepting it anyway. You might as well go light it on fire. you're giving out of a sense of trust in Him. Gratefulness for all the good things that He's done in your life as an expression of your love as you come near to Him. Then it's something that He can accept. 
I probably don't have time to go through them all, so I want to do this for you. I want to give you the five Levitical sacrifices and tell you a little bit about them. I'm just not going to be able to read them. But God is so good to us that He put them in sequential order in the chapters. How about that? By the way, what is five the number of in the Bible? Grace! Grace. There are five different kind of offerings mentioned in the book of Leviticus, all of which are korban, a way to come near to God with an offering in hand. The first one is Ola. Ola. <laughs> Not hello, Abel. This is the traditional burnt offering. Its words literally mean ascending. When you korban Olah, you are coming near to God, bringing an offering, ascending into His presence. The next one, Menkau. It's hard to say, it's not really Menkau, it's Menkau. M-I-N-C-H-A-H. This is a donation or tribute that is bloodless. <laughs> I want you to think about this. In its day, in its setting, to say, bring me a grain offering, a bloodless offering. Boy, this is one that King James botched, by the way. They call it a meat grain offering because they didn't know how to translate this word. If you were going to bring God something in this day, usually, the pagan concept would be the more you hurt yourself, the more you degrade, defile yourself, the more you hurt someone else, the greater the bloodletting, the greater the offering. How interesting is it that in the very second sacrifice that God asked for, it is bloodless. What is He trying to say? I want your thankfulness. I want your thankfulness. Grain offering. My favorite is the third. Shalim. S-H-E-L-E-M. By the way, let me give you those Strong's numbers for the other two. The first one, Ola, was Strong's number 5930. The second one, Minchal, was Strong's 4503. The third one, Shalim, this is Strong's number 8002. This is my favorite. This offering had to do with a meal. Of all the things that you could do, for the pagan gods, you could certainly not sit down at a table as <clears throat> a peer and eat. But in the book of Leviticus, God says, when you korban, when you come near to me, I want you to bring a fellowship offering, a shalim. And if shalim sounds familiar to you, it's where we get the word shalom. You're going to offer me something, and then we're going to sit down and we're going to eat together in the presence of God. This is the tantamount to our communion meal. You would eat with your God in the presence of God. You know what was interesting about this? Meals have always been a way to say, let's be reconciled. Come on, if Amanda and Oneida get in a fight and they don't know what to do because one thinks Abel's right, the other thinks Abel's wrong, and what are we going to do about that? Blah, 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 blah. At some point, they said, come on, Ma. Can't we go get a taco and talk about this? Right? <laughs> See, they're teaching me. I, I am loving the food that Abel has brought into my life. This is like two lost guys, though. 
said, come on, dude, let's just go get a beer and talk about this. It is a way to reconcile. And God said, when you draw near to me, here's one thing you can do. You can ola. Here's another thing you can do. You can menchow. Here's another one. You can shalim. But all of them speak of God drawing near to you and you drawing near to God. I heard another Jewish proverb the other day that's not in the Bible that I loved. I mean, I loved it. A king has a son. The son leaves the king's presence and is angry and he runs off and he's wasting his life. Finally, the king and the son correspond through letters and the king says, come back, my son. And the son says, I can't. He says, will you come as far as you can and I will meet you the rest of the way. That's the picture of our God. You come as far as you can, and I will meet you the rest of the way. It's a God who's not just saying repent. He's helping you do it. It's a God who's not saying go hurt yourself, degrade yourself, make yourself less. He's simply saying I will provide all of the sacrifice if you will come as far as you can. Korban. What an amazing God that is. Now I know preachers present it other ways because if I push on David hard enough I might get another dollar out of his pocket that I can do good things with. But what does it do to David? Where's his worth before God? Whether he gave a dollar or not. This is not God. And when you hear me say don't sit in the house of God a thief, what I'm trying to say is not that you appease the agriculture gods. I'm trying to say if you don't learn to show God you're faithful for what you have, you will never get more. That's what I'm trying to say. A shalim. Offering four and five. Our hatal. This is, uh, you could say, C-H-A-T-A. These are all transliterations. You can say them any way you want. It's number 2398. And the fifth one, Asham, A-S-H-A-M. Chata is 2398, Asham is 816 in your strongs. One of them deals with a problem, and the other deals with the result. Well, it's good, God, that you're willing to make any sacrifice. It's good that you've made a way for me to come near you, but God, I still got this. You know, it's an amazing thing. In the ancient world, if Nolan kills my brother, I'm going to spend my whole life trying to kill Nolan. Nolan's got to carry that around with him all of his life. How many people do you know that still don't sleep well because of the Vietnam War? Yeah. I got a guy in my family that still sits up in bed, cold sweats at night, because he's never found a way to deal with what he thinks is sin in his life. Chata. Sin. God provided an offering that when you were done with this, you could say, I am done with that. You got me? You could say, I know this was horrible and I wished it had never happened. Now that it has, I didn't mean to kill him, Lord. It just happened. Now that it has, I can be done with that and walk on in newness. The last one was related to it. A sham. It's a guilt offering. When you don't feel like you can go into the presence of God. When you feel like your prayer bounces off of the ceiling. When you felt distant from the unseen spiritual forces. God said, come to me with that guilt. Come to me with that guilt. I'm going to tell you, you do this, this, and this, and then you can consider the guilt gone. And God said it. 
That sounds like mercy to me. That sounds like grace to me. Not a B-grade slasher film. Not something that was simply a chain around someone's neck. Not something solely meant to restrain. You say, but wait a minute, the law led us to Christ. New and better things. Yes, it led us by painting a picture of what He's like. When you look at these five things, could you not say that it's like Jesus saying, come near me, I'm not distant. It's like Jesus saying, trust me and we can fellowship together. It's like Jesus saying, there can be shalom between each of us and each of you. It's like Jesus saying, even if you've sinned and you are guilty, I can provide a way. What did God say to Abraham on the mountain? On this mountain, I will provide. Jesus is all five of these sacrifices. Jesus is the Isaac of God, the son who he loved that he killed for you. My goodness, this is not just old ritual. And in its day, it was revolutionary. People would be like, are you kidding me? A sacrifice and I can be done with that sin? It's not going to mark me all of my life? I heard a story about a man in the Maasai tribe. Y'all know the Maasai? They're the giant Africans that run around naked and um, work with cattle. Either they're a manhood puberty rights, have them running across the back of cows. If you ever see that on National Geographic, you go, oh, no. Because <laughs> there's just something you cannot not watch about a seven foot tall guy running naked across the back of cows and a whole village standing by. Like, that's his mom, that's his grandma. Go figure. <laughs> there are some things that you can do in the Maasai tribe that can have you excommunicated, put you outside of the people, and can never come back. So, one man's account was that while he was living among the Messiah, he kept seeing this guy off in the distance. And everywhere they went, everywhere they moved, there was a guy off in the distance. He finally went to go to the guy, right? Because we're Westerners. We're used to Korban. We're used to drawing near and having God draw near to us. The idea that somebody can be so far away that they can never come back doesn't enter our thoughts. We have the parable of the prodigal son. We have those stories that have been woven into the fabric of who we are, but there was a time in history it was not there. And the Messiah are the most ancient people on the planet. They resist all modernization. So he goes and he talks to the guy and he says, why are you always out there? He says, you don't understand. I did a thing. Says, okay, we did a thing. Let's fix it. There is no remedy for the thing that I did. I can never again be part of my people. That's where all of mankind was at some point. And God said, you can go on. You can come near me. But he goes even a step further. He goes even a step further. And this is so good, it might blow the doors off of your body just to hear it. Unseen sport forces. We spent our whole life trying to appease them. We said, no, no, that was then, it's not now. Really, why do you work so hard for a promotion you're not happy when you get? Why do you try to buy the affection of your children? Why do you work desperately for the affection of some guy that after he uses you will not want you anymore? Unseen forces at work in our lives. Well, what is the right force? How do I get it? How do I have life in me? What is the right way to do this? John 1.18, I will wait for you to get there.
No one has ever seen God. Would that make Him an unseen force? But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. All of mankind lived with an anxiety. All of mankind lived with an innate guilt. All of mankind lived separated and outside of God's people with no way to come back. And an unseeable, unknowable, distant God would be no different than the gods the pagans worship. And we would fall into things like cutting ourselves, or giving more, or doing this, or doing that, or working our way to a God that we couldn't see or understand. So God showed up in the midst of human history while all of this was going on. And He said, your gods want you to kill people? Well, watch this. Your gods want you to kill your son? Watch this. Take your son with me. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Don't stop. Just do it. You get there. The knife is in the air. He says, uh-uh. I will do this for you. You don't do this for me. I will do this for you. Your gods want you to sacrifice in all of these unwholesome ways? Come here. Let me show you the kind of sacrifice that's acceptable to me. The kind that allows you to come into my presence and we can eat like we're friends. The kind that does away with your guilt. The kind that does away with your sin and your shame. Not the kind that just burns up to the heavens to try to reach an unreachable God, but the kind that allows you to ascend with the offering into the presence of God. And lastly, as an expression of all of the ages, He took His very side, an expression of who He was, who He is, His very substance, and he said, I will let you see me. Look, right here. Philip, don't you know that when you look at me, you're looking at the Father? After I've been with you so long, you don't get it? That unknowable, unseeable force you've tried to worship. The unknown God to you. That you named through characteristics. That you named through Hebrew scriptures. That you named through others what you told. You're now looking at Him. That is the beauty of the incarnation. It's the miracle what was worshipped as something grasped at could now be embraced. So the question then becomes, why do we not embrace? Why do we not receive all that He has meant for us to have? Why? Why do we hold on to guilt that He's already paid for? Why do we hold on to sin that He has already paid for and asked you to move on from? Why do we not fellowship in His presence when He has broke open the way for you to be in His presence? Why do we act as if He's some pagan God that wants something unreasonable from you? You know what He wants from you? He wants daily love and affection. He wants you to korban. He wants you to come into His presence and never do it empty-handed. Come showing. I have of what you've given me, and I'm putting it to work. That's what he wants. This could be a vain, dry ritual, and others have made it that. They put on the ridiculous religious outfits, go to the ridiculous buildings, and hold ridiculous services. What our God wants from you is a relationship. And he has quite literally moved the heavens and the earth to create the environment in which it can grow. You say, but what about the sin? He says, don't you worry about it. I batah. You say, but what about the shame? What about the guilt? Don't you worry about it, I for sure. So, but can there really be peace between us? I always seem to get this wrong. He says, I shall in. He is all of them. He is all of them. How dare us turn away? 
I have two more scriptures for you. First is Hebrews 9. It'd be 26 through 28. I'll start reading. But now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Once for all at the end of the ages. That word end of the ages is telos. Once for all at the culmination point of all of the ages. Once for all at the summation or the fullness of time. He's appeared. No more progressive revelations. No more, I will teach you through Abraham as far as we can teach you. And then I will teach you through Moses as far as we can teach you. The fullness of all that God ever wanted to teach us culminated in the man Jesus. And when you want to know what God is like, it is great to read the writings of Moses. It's great to study the life of Abraham. But there is no life that better exemplifies what God is like than the life of Jesus. How acquainted with it are you? Your book has four accounts of it. A total of 27 epistles or gospels that were written about it. Your book has 39 historic, awesome, scriptural works that were safe for you to teach you about it. How acquainted are you? And are you suffering because of your own ignorance? Have you relied on what other men have taught you about God rather than what you have learned and walked with yourself? This would be very much, very much like instead of having a loving relationship with my wife of 17 years and knowing everything about her on a personal level, it would be very much like trying to be married with Jennifer but only knowing what Matthew told me about her. Matt, do you think Jen likes this or that? I think she'd like that one. Well, that's fine on occasion, but what if that was my only relationship with her? Would you call that a marriage? Don't you tell me you know Jesus when all you know about Him is what other people tell you. What have you experienced yourself? When all you know is what other people tell you, they lie to you and you accept it. They tell you, send me a hundred, I'll send you seven hundred, and you go, okay. They tell you He's mad at you and won't heal you, and you go, okay. They tell you you must dress like a penguin or He won't see you, and you go, okay. They tell you you've got to eat a magic cracker or you can't go in His presence and you go, okay. I met Him. He spoke to me. I speak to Him. We have a relationship and He is nothing like they say He is. Meet Him yourself. Nothing like they say He is. When I found it out, I wanted to burn my own church down. Because they lied to me about Him for years. They told me He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. He's basically in retirement. Just like them. Meet Him yourself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away sins of many people. And He will appear a second time, not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. He is not waiting for you to save yourself. He's waiting for you to embrace Him as Savior and He will bring it to you. I listened to a video that David gave me the other day. A man's debating with a Mormon. The Mormon is saved by his works. He kept trying to get the man who was debating with him to say that he had broken a commandment or sin. He said, no, 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 I'm a bad man. 
I said, no, I don't think you understood the question. He goes, no, I understood it perfectly. I'm a sinful man. The worst. I mean, absolute disgusting. If it weren't for Christ, I'd have no value at all. Mormon had no idea what to do with that. I'm not aspiring to be a bad man. But I want to acknowledge before you, if it were not for the Atah, if it were not for the Asham, if it were not for all of those works of Jesus, I couldn't stand before you with a straight face and speak about it. In my flesh, there's not a single thing that's found good just like yours. But this doesn't excuse you to stay the way that you are. God's called you to something more. He will fix you. He will justify you. He will bless you. Why? So you can spread that to other people. We do not preach a gospel of greed. And if you've embraced one, you need to repent. God blesses you so you can be a blessing to other people. Here is our last scripture. By the way, I have no idea how long I preach when we start before 12. I try to wrap it up by 12. But uh, you can take up any long sermons with Matthew. Because the sooner I get up here, the longer I preach. (laughs) This scripture comes from Colossians. It'll be the first chapter of Colossians. We're going to be in the 10th verse. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. This is not a situation where if you don't do what He says, fire falls from the sky and consumes your crops. You're simply not living up to the potential that He called you to. What a shame would it be to work less for a man, less for a God, less for a deity that is kind to you and gracious to you than you would for one that wanted your sons and daughters in the fire. I'm shamed every time I see two Mormons riding their bicycles down the street. It's ridiculous that they do it. But they're willing. If Jesus asked you to do it, would you? I hate it. When the older and younger show up at my house, knock on my door, want to hand me religious literature but won't take any from me, I go, oh, you're Jehovah's Witness. But at least they're willing to knock on a door. Are you? They worship false gods that require them to degrade themselves in unusual ways. All you need to do is study a little bit and you'll find it out. You serve the living God who only wants to lift you up. Will you serve Him with less passion than the cult serve their gods? We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. We don't stand disqualified. If you embrace Him, you stand qualified, joyful, thankful, in the light. Come on now. You have to appreciate on some level that for thousands of years people didn't feel this way. They were thrown out of a garden and moved ever so further eastward. And now we have a way to stand qualified and in His presence. This is no small thing. For He rescued us. Rescued. He 
rescued us from the dominion, kingship, rulership, domination of darkness. And brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This sounds very much like a God that says, wait, don't cut yourself. Wait, don't give me offerings that are trying to appease me. Instead, let me do all of the work and then tell you how we can sit down and have a meal together. This sounds very much like a God who wants to meet with you. Let me ask you something, though. Do you think we will escape judgment if we ignore such a God? Everything that I just read you, everything, every story that I just told you, was written to keep us from setting our hearts on sinful, unbelieving things and following the examples that went before us. Do you think that we will escape judgment if we ignore such a great salvation? I don't. And I don't intend to find out. I see that my Father has bridged the gap between that which could not be seen and He has made it seeable. He's made a way into the place that no one could go that I could go there. He's done away with my sin and my guilt, which I was never able to do myself. And now I don't serve Him trying to appease the agriculture gods or the hunting gods or the fertility gods. I serve Him because I want to teach other people about the ways that He's blessed me. Why do you serve Him? Do you serve Him? Stand to your feet. We rescued you from terrorists. We wouldn't catch you playing in their backyard next week. We rescued you from a rabid dog. We wouldn't expect you to be laying with your head in his lap next week. You need to remember that the world is something to be rescued from. Don't play with it. Friendship with the world is warfare, hatred towards God. Because they have a different system of unknowable, unseeable gods. And he's made himself known to you so that you're without excuse. Join hands, let's pray. Mighty, mighty God. Lord, I have declared your truth as you've declared it to me. And I pray that it would take root in their hearts. I see faith in some of their eyes, Lord. And I'm asking that you would grow it. That your relationship with each of these people would become so strong that they would need that no one teach them. That when we gather together, Lord, it would be to strengthen one another. Holy One, I pray that these rescued ones would become rescuers of lost souls. Lord, send them out into the nations. Gather your wheat into your barn. Mighty, mighty God, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 Hallelujah.